you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Turn my clock on so I don't get long-winded here. I might get long-winded anyway, but at least I'll know it. <laughs> what we're going to do here over the next, if you're our guest, welcome. I want to sort of, we, we do things sometimes a little bit differently, and so I like to try to explain myself every once in a while. Uh, we we don't generally preach topically here. In other words, I didn't think of a topic this week and, and find a text to preach that. We, we pick sections of Scripture, books of the Bible, and we preach it all. The good, the hard, all of it. And we have landed here in 1 Corinthians. And we looked at the first nine verses last week. So if we looked at verse 9 last week, what verses are we going to pick up this week? Verse 10, that's right. So if you find that, just so you know, what we're going to do starting next week, I hope it'll make even more sense as the sermon unfolds. Uh, We're going to take two weeks right in the middle of 1 Corinthians as we just get started. We're going to talk about evangelism. And so for the next two weeks, and our growth group curriculum is already out there. It looks like this. Growth groups are going to be looking at the life of Jesus and what we can learn about evangelism. The group's going to be looking at for the Lord. He was the evangelist, capital E. And um, that's what growth group's going to be looking at for the next two weeks. So I just wanted you to be aware of it. Uh, We'll have some of these books out as well. This is from Nine Marks called Evangelism for you next week as well for you to begin to start picking those up. So I just wanted you to be prepared for that and be thinking about it. Christ the wisdom, and the power of God. Let's stand to our feet as we look at 1 Corinthians. I'm only going to read the first eight verses here. We'll look at the rest as we go this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we have gathered ourselves and we have been led well in, in music to the gospel, to your son, to that wisdom that is found only at the cross. Lord, may we of 
of any days that we need to decrease and you need to increase, it is this subject matter here. And so, Lord, would you strengthen your people to open our mouths and speak the cross of Christ. For it is the power of God. And it brings salvation. This is your word, Lord. Help us to understand it and to apply it today in Jesus' name. Amen. So anytime you sit under the preaching of the word or anytime you engage someone with the gospel or with a conversation with the intent to get to the gospel, that person, and that's you this morning, has two realities. You may have already started doing it. There is those songs that we're singing. This is Jacob, right? So you, and here now we have the message being preached and you have me. So here's the question. Here's the issue that's coming up. The first thing Paul's going to put his finger on. It's not the last thing. Paul's going to put his finger on all kind of. He's going to, he's going to be touching all kind of sore spots over the next few chapters. But he, he's asking the question... What are you doing with the message and the messenger? Which is more important in the church of Jesus Christ today? The message received or the exact way Jacob played this morning or didn't play? This is the issue that was going on there. And I would surmise it's probably the issue going on many places today. When God's people gathered today, you see the problem was this issue of fellowship. So look at your Bibles. We ended with verse 9. Remember what it said, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. It said, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this issue of fellowship, not just any kind of fellowship, it's, it's got this word calling. Remember we looked at that last week. It's this word of a king who summons people. So that word could even mean chosen. Called into fellowship with his son. The problem, you see, is what we looked at the big picture. Remember when we looked at the overview of 1 Corinthians? The church is supposed to look like something. It's supposed to look unified. It's supposed to look loving. It's supposed to be holy. So what he's beginning to put his finger on is one of these issues is not happening. Matter of fact, none of them are. And in fullness, and so he says to start with, hold on a second, there's some disunity going on. Now, we don't want to misunderstand what he's saying today or what I'm saying today. The messenger is not unimportant. Paul spends much defending his credentials as an apostle, right? We, the Bible gives us qualifications for spiritual leadership. By the way, all leadership is supposed to be a spiritual leadership. So that, but this is the best way I've gotten my own mind around it today. So you have water. You're going to go home. You're going to turn on the... the I probably shouldn't call it a speak it, but that's what we call it, a speak it. You're going to turn it turn on. And what's going to come out? <laughs> Don't mess up my illustration. <laughs> what should come out? Water. You probably helped my illustration, by the way. Water should come out. So, so how did the water get there? 
pipes. <laughs> you, you really, I think the Holy Spirit gave you that illustration. So, so how important is the pipes? If, if the water is coming out stained, if you got rust in the lines, if you got iron, if you taste it, you're like, hmm, what is that? I don't know what that is. There's stuff floating around in the bottom here. That's probably not a good sign. In other words, the pipes are important. But what do you really want? Pure water. So you see, the conduit is conduits. The pipes are important. Not the main thing. Not the main thing. That's what he's saying today. The pipes are critical. The messenger is critical. But you have made him the main thing. That's what he's saying today. That's the report. So you see, I call it man-centered disunity. We could really call it man-centered unity. There is a form of unity that is not Christ-centered unity. And he puts his finger on it. The reported problem that comes to him is that there is a man-centered disunity. Think about it this way. You've got an orchestra. And I had to look this up because my wife who's not here is the music, musician of the family. I had to text her a couple questions from Boston to try to make sure that I get this straight. But in an orchestra, generally speaking, you have strings, you have woodwinds, you have brass, and you have percussion. And what has happened basically in the church is, is the brass folks have went over on their side and the percussion people went over on their side and the strings go over on their side. The woodwinds are back there in the corner. They're hanging around with each other because they really like each other. And none of, us, none of us percussion folks understand each other except other percussion folks. And here's what we're saying. We like that conductor. He does a better job. Another one says, no, no, no. We like the other conductor. He, he really speaks to me in a way. The percussion people are saying, we don't even need a conductor. We got it. What's the result? Really bad music. No harmony. Nobody's on the same piece of sheet music. You see, someone's given us the sheet music and we don't get to choose Here's what happens, undergirds it, this man-centered disunity. I, I am rich, so I hang around rich people. I am intellectual, so I love to hang around intellectual people. I'm a Baptist, so I only hang around other Baptists. I love Preacher X, so I only engage with people who love Preacher X, and all the other preachers are probably heretics anyway. This is the man-centeredness. And it, it bleeds itself out into valuing the messenger and minimizing the message. No, this morning, if you only have to talk to someone to say, you've already been here in a sermon for 10 minutes, you're not going to get a 15-minute devotional this morning. <laughs> Why? It brings disunity. This is the report. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, brothers. This word brothers means brothers and sisters. It's general Looking at the church saying, what's wrong? There's quarreling. And the quarreling, and we'll get to it in a little bit, is over the rhetorical ability of the ministers, like some better than others. This is what the strife that he first, it's a deeper problem than that. If you want to flip over and see where we're headed, he's not the disunity, this issue of unity is not going to go away. 
is only going to get more specific. In chapter 3, verse 3, you see there's this disunity is deeper than just the, they don't like the preacher. It says here in verse chapter 3, verse 3, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So we see that disunity is deeper than just not liking the, the preacher. There's no harmony. I don't know if you understand this. I never even heard of it. You might, you might know you're passionate about music. My wife was telling me the other day, if, how many people remember barbershop quartets? There's a few people. Well, some of you got to know the Eagles, right? You know, some of the music that they play, there's this, there's this amazing harmony. When you hear it, when they hit that point, there's something that just says, wow. She says that when there's a perfect harmony, there's a phenomenon that goes on in music called an overtone. It sounds as if in the midst of that harmony that there's somebody else singing. It's just this perfect match of everybody knowing their parts, everybody blending, everybody harmonizing. And what comes over the top of that is this phenomenon in music called an overtone. This is what he's saying. When the church is in unity and fellowship with each other, as Christ is their head, there is an overtone amongst them that is unmistakable. And so he appeals to them in verse 10 that they be unified. I appear to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. And remember, he has already made the case, this is not just my opinion. What I say comes from the Lord. So he says this again, he's appealing to them. Not this is not a matter of his private opinion. He's saying, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his authority. See this... Division is nothing more than discord. That's why we're thinking music, because we understand discord when we hear it. They're not thinking the same. They don't have the same purpose. This word division here in verse 10 in the Greek means schism. It's the, it's the picture of a tearing of a garment into. That's what it causes. It's just the garment has been torn, and what unity, what unification is about is restoration, complete and full. That's what he, that's what he longs for. <laughs> but you know, the Corinthians are probably sitting there reading this saying, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm just fine. What is he making a big deal about? So he wants to make sure they understand the issue. So he gives them an example of disunity. Verse 12, what I mean is, you ever had that conversation? You're talking to somebody and they're not, you know, they're not with you. You say, I need an illustration. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This is the nature of the quarrels. And we looked at this when we looked at Ephesians and the gospel of what Christ does in Christ. He takes two enemies, he makes them family under Christ. And so what many people think is sort of the the core of the quarreling is we have within the church now Jews and Gentiles. The Jews would be more inclined to who do you think they would like? Paul or Peter? Peter. Right? Peter's called a priest of the Jews. Paul went to the Gentiles. And so who would the Gentiles more maybe favor? Paul. But you see, when amongst the Gentiles there were Greeks. And Greeks had a particular preference of who they wanted to listen to. They liked Paulus, because he was eloquent. 
Who's a better speaker than Paul? And you even had another, they were the percussionists, that I, the illustration that I used earlier, that sitting there going, we follow Christ, you don't even matter. They're, but it doesn't matter, even if they said they follow Christ, what are they causing within the body? Disunity. They have separated themselves from themselves. You see, this is not a failure among the leaders here. Now, sometimes there is. This is not the case here. No, he's already made the case, and he will again, that we are on the same page. Peter and Paul and Paul, we got one gospel. This is what happens when secular thinking invades the church. So what's the grounds? What does he make the case? Look at verse 13. The grounds for our unity. It's his, their allegiance to Christ. You see how he did? He poses in a question. He asks them three questions to teach them about their, where their allegiance should be. He asks them, is Christ divided? Can I ask you another question? He uses himself here. Was Paul crucified for you? Was he a wrath-removing, sin-atoning substitute for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you set apart for Paul? What is he teaching them there? Or first, the first question, he's teaching that Christ can't be parceled out. He can't be divided. He is one, and those who are saved are one in Him. There is no rich Jesus and poor Jesus. There is no black Jesus and white Jesus. There is no free Jesus and slave Jesus. There is no Jew Jesus and Gentile Jesus. There is only one Lord and one church. That's what He's teaching them. That's the gospel. That's not just about... It's about us. Saying, are you... Christ is not divided. There's no superhero preachers. Only instruments in the hand of God. He says, let's be... Secondly, he says, I didn't redeem you. I got no power of redemption. I brought you the gospel. It's Christ that's redeemed you. Jesus Christ is one. Jesus Christ redeemed you. Third, I didn't consecrate you in baptism. You wasn't set apart for me. You didn't say the old is gone, the new has come, so I might live for Paul. Verse 17 is the hinge verse for the whole text today. Look at it. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? Preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross be emptied of its power. If you're taking notes, write this down. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God, not the eloquence of man. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God, not the eloquence of man. It's not in your notes. Romans 1.16, you know this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, it is the power. Paul is saying this over and over in his letters. I am not the power. I am the conduit. The gospel's the power. But see, they had... They had risen among them a secular standard that they were looking for amongst their leaders. Greeks valued the ability to do rhetoric. That's an, it was an art form for them. 
The art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing. That's what they valued. And so when they came into the church and the, and the book was open, what they were more concerned was not the gospel message, but how that preacher was speaking. He didn't make me laugh enough today. He made me laugh too much. He's not being serious. He, they were looking for something. They had embraced a standard of the world and imposed it within the church. This had called division. And Paul's clear. He uses the, the words, words of human wisdom. That means, I didn't come to you with some kind of clever trickery. That's what he's saying. I'm not trying to bait and switch you. I'm not trying to lull you into signing a card or saying a prayer and mark it done. He said, I, never, I wasn't the kind of preacher that tried to draw people in with my persuasive speech. Why? Well, look at verse 17. What does it say? Remember, here's what we're trying to understand. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? And how do we live in relation to it? Here's what he says. It would have nullified the power of the cross of Christ. If, if it was just about how I say what I say, if that's the heart of our evangelism, you see, this is the fear that we have bought into of why we keep our mouths shut to our neighbors. You think it's about you and how you say it. What is he saying? It's not about you and how you say it. It's about get the gospel right. The gospel is the power. I'm not the power. That's what he's saying. If he relied on rhetoric, the ability to have persuasive speech, then the cross would have been nullified in its power. If they were converted, it would have been because look how many we saved. So the man-centered disunity here stems from the elevation of the messenger. Over the power of the gospel, there is an objective truth. And both the messenger and the recipient have to understand the objective truth. Because that's the only way you can get to Christ-centered unity. That's what we see in verses 18 to 25. The wisdom of the gospel brings two responses. Or you could say, there's always, any time you, you proclaim the gospel, there's two audiences that are there. Doesn't matter where you go. Be in church, same. There's people who are thinking that you are gonna, you're an idiot. It's just what they're, that's what, foolish. That's what you're saying, it's foolish. There's people that, that hear it and say, that's the power of God right there. That's, that's what I believe. That's the gospel. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. So here he goes, instead of going, he's talking about wisdom and folly. Instead, he uses this word power. There are two groups right here, aren't there? There's those that are perishing and those that are being saved. You see that? Two groups. Those that are perishing are unbelievers who, when we give the message, they see it as foolishness. And then there's, someone, there's others that are being saved. He didn't say they, they were saved. He says there are being saved. These are people that the Holy Spirit has changed their very nature and by that their perspective, their ability to see God's Word and to hear it and to receive it. He, he wants to illustrate it. You know this is common anytime the New Testament says, for it is written. He's about to quote the Bible. Remember, this letter wasn't canonized the way it is right now. And when the New Testament right, says, for it is written, or as the Scripture says, they're quoting the, the Old Testament. 
And here we see in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What is, why does he use that? Why does he go back to the Old Testament? Well, he's quoting Isaiah 29 14. If you have a good study Bible, I would recommend you having that. The ESV study Bible is a, a wonderful tool for you to study your Bible with. It probably tells you. This is quoting Isaiah 29, verse 14. So, why would the prophet Isaiah say this? Listen to what he says. Isaiah 29, verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Because Israel had a tendency to look at the world and embrace the standards of the world instead of Yahweh. You remember the wilderness? Got to the promised land. I mean, they're, they're right there. And they say, Woo, look at them big people. They're big. We can't take them. They're too big for us. What happened? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness to everybody who did not trust in the Lord died. And he rose up another generation that entered. Remember them saying, they looked around at the nations and says, we want a king like them. The Old Testament, we saw Egyptians had their wise men and Assyrians had their scholarship and Babylonians had their power. And Israel often looked to any one of them and began to say, that's what we want. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, you know this verse, there is a way that seems right to a man, but his end is the way of death doesn't seem like the way of death to the world. It seems like it just makes logical sense to ally with the powerful and embrace the culture of those who seem successful. How does God work? Well, turn with me in, your old, in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy. I just want you to see this. This is the example of godly wisdom. This is the, what Paul is getting to. His reason why he's pulling them back into the Old Testament here to God's people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Israel might ask, we're going to get there with us here in a minute, why am I a child of God? Why am I his people? Here's what he says. Verse 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to, to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why are you saved, children of Israel? You are saved not because you are many or mighty, but simply because I set my affections on you. Oh, that God would engulf us this morning. That the king that created the universe of which we cannot find the end of, Set his affections on you. You see, that's what we want to tell people when we evangelize. We want to point them to this God that sent his son into the world to die for us so that we may live for him and enjoy him now and forever. We want to get to the gospel. We're not trying to draw them into a concert this morning. 
We're not. We're not, we're not trying to create a theater-style experience and slip in 10 or 15-minute devotional. We want to hear the gospel. We don't need to be slick. We don't need to be trickery. We just need to do one thing. This is the fundamental principle of evangelism. Start where you need to start. But get to the gospel and your, and your life experience is not the gospel. It is a bridge to the gospel. Get to the gospel. Your hobbies are not the gospel. They are a bridge to the gospel, but they are not the gospel. Get to the gospel. Don't get them to the preacher. Don't get them to the growth group leader. You've been given the gospel and the mandate to proclaim it. Get to the gospel. It is the power. Spurgeon says this, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Not about you. It's about the power of the gospel that we have. It is, it has unifying power. Not the messenger, the message. And this confounds the wisdom of man. It does. That's what he's saying. It confounds us as Christians. Look at what it says in verse 20. Back to 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The church can begin to applaud the message of the world. And here's what he's saying. Plato and Aristotle and all that come before them and all that come after them studied themselves, but it got them nowhere with the Almighty. The more they studied, the more foolish they became. He says he did this because he made their wisdom foolishness. In other words, it did not help them get to the, to the one true God. And you are bringing their standards into the church? Last week we talked about this question. Do you remember the answer? According to verses 1 to 9, who is called? Do you remember? Who's the first one that Paul said is called? He was. He said, Paul... Called to be an apostle. Who else did he say is called? You are. The church. (laughs) Only the called recognize God's power and wisdom. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You got that picture? If you're a Roman, this is literally Roman graffiti. You like graffiti like you see on the side of the trains or buildings and stuff? This is Roman graffiti. This is how they saw the cross. You see it? Got a donkey's head on it. In other words, to the world, sometimes this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ seems like. That's just reality. That's not 2019 reality. That is their reality. It is our reality. So who is rejecting the gospel according to this passage? Verse 22. Everybody is. Everybody meaning Jews and Greeks. 
The Jews trip over it and the Greeks laugh at it. And so what do we do? Do we, do we set God's word, so to speak, we close it up and set it on maybe a little shelf underneath here and let's yes, use the world's means to gather people together? What does he say? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And yes, some people it sounds like this picture. What does it say? But to those, verse 24, but to those who are called. So who? Now again, say who rejects? Jews and Greeks. Look at the text. Who does God save? What? Jews and Greeks. You see it? What makes the difference? The call of God makes the difference. You see, this is the difference between me telling you what the Bible says and just reading it. This is what it's saying. That we preach the gospel message and whether they think we are foolish or whether they are saved depends on God, not me. So Paul's saying, for goodness sakes, don't make much of me. Make much of the gospel. I love this next part. 26 to 31. The indisputable evidence that this is true. So you know what he does? I wish I could do it this morning. It's as if this letter, he brings in this giant mirror that goes all the way across the worship center this morning. And how would you like to do that while I was preaching? You had to sit there and look at yourself. That's what he's doing here. And this, this is the evidence. It's in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. Which means this this morning. For us, Look in the spiritual mirror this morning and ask yourself the question, why did God call you? Why are you saved and sitting here this morning? Why are you following Jesus? Consider this for a minute. Now follow the argument. They're following these leaders because of how eloquent or how powerful or how noble. He says, consider your calling. Verse 27 28, he does this. He said, okay, now you're looking in the mirror. Um, who's foolish? According to the world standards. Everybody would have to raise their hand and say, I'm, according to their standards, I'm not a Greek philosopher. <laughs> who is, verse 27, who is weak? I'm weak. Who is low? Well, you're low. Who is despised in the world? They would have to say, we are. Matter of fact, look at what it says. I can't stand it when prosperity preachers just rip this passage out of its context and try to use it to get wealthy. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. What is, what is he saying there? That according to the world, according to these leaders, these standards that you are trying to achieve, you don't even exist. In other words, the world looks at you, the noble, the rich class looks at you, and they say, you're nobody. You don't even factor in. What does it say? While you're looking in the mirror, 
But God chose you. You see it? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring the things that are. Why? So that no human might boast in the presence of God. Not Paul, not Peter, not Apollos, and not me, and not you. We are saved because the Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, set His love on you. And when you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you believed. And if that truth is true, it's the reason we take the gospel It's the reason we have a team walking around Boston, one of the most post-Christian cultures of our day, with kids going from one dorm to another. They're doing it right now. Why is this important? Let's ask this question. In whom or what are you boasting in today? Of all the ways we could have applied, I think this was important this morning. We are in danger. Our children and our grandchildren are in danger of adopting functional saviors or thinking they are a functional savior. Marriages are in trouble and struggling. Our kids know not their place, even in the family. Because we, have a, we actually think that either we can save them or they will save us. And so we get married thinking only if I have a wife and my, my wife and my children, they are my life. No! Christ is your life. And He must be your life so that you may love your family as Christ loved the church. And if you don't get that right, you won't love your wife right. You won't even know how to deal with your Husband, we have to understand there is one Savior and our spouse or our children or even this church is not it. Our church points people to the Savior. We are a family. A family with one Lord. It's not me. It's not you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... You could think you found a Prince Charming that's going to be your savior. It only takes a little while to realize he leaves his dirty socks on the floor. And that that, that nasty guy don't even wash his hands sometimes when he goes to the bathroom. I mean, he's no Prince Charming. And you're not a princess either. (laughs) How am I relating to people today? Am I relating... Wanting to be a functional savior or expecting somebody to do for me what only God can do. That's why it's important. It's not about you. If you want a happy marriage, learn that principle. It's not about you. I love Jeremiah. I quote it all the time because it's just so un refreshing and overwhelming to understand this was true in the Old Testament and the New. Jeremiah 9, 23 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise 
man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul Tripp was right when he says that we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. The most powerful thing that we can ever give anyone is the wisdom and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we end today where Paul leaves us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 and 31. It says, this is what we're about to respond to. This truth either means absolutely nothing to you or it means absolutely everything. And because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus. What is He saying? It's not because of me you're in Christ. It's because of Him you're in Christ. Who became to us wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Why? Verse 31. So that it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What will be our response? Here's my prayer. That's why Jacob chose the song he chose today. That we might boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard from your word and your word is very clear Lord how then will we respond by the way we pray the way we prepare ourselves by the way we go with the gospel by the way we live our very lives but Lord uh, we're about to leave here and we were talking in the lobby life gets gets hard busy and complicated when we leave here so Lord we just thank you this morning for this sweet time that we as your people could gather and reorient and focus ourselves on that which is chiefly important by the gospel of Jesus Christ you have called us to yourself And so, Lord, now we seek to make much of you as we make much of your Son and who he is and what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.